Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. So today, here comes the fun, right? We talked about this last week. Last week we have had the heavy hitter from Romans 7, right? That super confusing passage. And we talked about this command throughout Scripture from God to Christians. Does God really say that Christians should stop sinning, right? Because we look at that and we see this as like this impossible command. There's no way God would ask us that, right? There's no way that he would ask that of us. But all the time, all throughout Scripture, we see God asking us to do impossible things because he doesn't want us to put the burden on ourselves to do it. He wants us to surrender to him and to let him do it through us. So we hit hard on that, about how Christians, when we are being discipled by the Holy Spirit, if we're walking in the Spirit, we should be living lives without sin. If we do sin, like John tells us in the letter of 1 John, if we do sin, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ who will pay our way for the Father, who will plead for us in front of the Father to forgive us of our sins, but that's a big if. Because the goal of every disciple of Jesus is that we would be walking in the Spirit, so much so that we wouldn't sin any longer. We would leave that life of sin behind. And when we walk in the Spirit, right, we talked about this, when we walk in the Spirit, we don't carry out the desires of the flesh, right? Guys, when I walk in the Spirit, when I am being led by the Spirit, I don't sin. It's black and white. It's that easy. The times when I sin are times when I step back into my flesh. And I think, no, 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 God, I know how to do this better than you do. I'm going to step in Jeremy's way. I'm going to step in my thoughts. I'm going to step in, in my intellect because God's given me intellect, right? He wants me to use my mind. And my... That's not what Scripture says, though, is it? He's given us the Holy Spirit because he wants us to be in one mind with the Spirit, one mind with him, and to use the mind of Christ to make decisions. There's that really awesome passage in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10.5, says we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. What a great prayer, right? Some of us need to, I, I need to pray that more often. I remember I, I disciple with my father-in-law and he told me that, I've told some of you this before, but I went back to him the next week, and I was like, man, I prayed it, and nothing happened. He's like, well, you can't just pray it once, <laughs> right? He said, there are some mornings that I wake up, and that's the only thing I pray. I feel like I spend my whole day just taking thoughts captive and making them obedient to Christ. Guys, thoughts are powerful things, aren't they? And if we let them run rampant, they will take over. Now, which way you go on that depends on who you're surrendering to, doesn't it? Because Jeremy's got some messed up thoughts. And if I let those run wild, they'll take me down trails that aren't good. But the Spirit gives us the mind of Christ. 
And if I take Jeremy's thoughts captive and I make them obedient to Christ, then all of a sudden I'm not traveling down this road anymore. I'm walking down his. So that's what we got to get to. Now, that was the heavy hitter. Today we get to Romans 8. Romans 8 is so full of promises, possibly one of the most promise-laden chapters in the Bible. It's like every verse you hit in Romans 8 is promise after promise after promise. So now we get the encouragement, right? Oh, you should know me better than that. There's going to be some haymakers thrown in here. But today we enter into Romans 8, and right off the bat, Paul gives us a doozy. So today, the the question we focus on is, did God really say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Right away, that's how Paul opens up Romans 8. Straight out of the gates, he blasts us with this promise. Now, I want to check something real quick. We have a horrible tendency of doing this as Christians. We read our Bible and, and you know, we, we, we have these wonderful chapter numbers and these verse numbers in our Bible so that I can say to you, man, go home and memorize Romans 8.1. And I don't even have to tell you what passage it is. You just go home and you look up Romans 8.1 and you see, oh, look, Romans 8.1, this is a great verse, and you memorize it. And it's great because we can talk to each other, we can find things quickly, it's awesome. But when the Bible was first written, all of it, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the original authors did not put chapter numbers and verse numbers in the Bible. Ta-da! Did you know that? Now you do. Um, But here's the problem. They are great. I love them. But they aren't Holy Spirit inspired. Which means that sometimes we get into these things, like Romans 8, where we start chapter 8 and we clean slate, right? Blank tablet. I'm starting all over again. But we forget to connect the dots and bring Romans 8.1 and beyond into Romans 7. Because for as confusing as Romans 7 can be, where Paul's doing this wishy-washy, what feels like he's like, oh, you know, I can't stop sinning. I just, the sin takes over and it takes Paul places I don't want to go. Where it feels like that's what he's saying. When we get into Romans 8.1, if we don't cut off and start over again, but we bring Romans 7 into Romans 8, which we should be doing, it makes a whole lot more sense. And those two passages just meld together. It's funny, Monday morning we have our men's Bible study here and I was talking with Michael and I was telling him like, I don't really know what to do because I feel like what we talked about with Romans 7 and like dying to self and all of that stuff, it's so big and it's, it's, so, it's just such an important part of our walk with Jesus. I feel like I should talk about it again. Like I should, I should hit on it again and, and not go into Romans 8 yet. And, you know, so we were talking about that, and I still didn't really know what to do. And then as I was getting ready to write the sermon later on Monday morning, I looked through and read through Romans 8, and I was like, (laughs) they go together, right? We're going to hit it anyway because they go together. But so many of us have that problem, and I I am included in that. Where Where we start a new chapter, we start a new sermon, we start a new sermon series, and we leave behind everything that happened in the past. But we can't do that. 
We have got to bring it all together. And so we're going to talk about a lot of what we talked about last week. But it's going to be through the light of, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're going to look at three things in this promise today. First, we're going to look at the promise. Then we're going to look at the consistency of the exclusive inclusion that is Christianity. Or if you're a pessimist, it's the inclusive exclusion. Really, either way you want to do it, it works. And then finally, to tie it all together, we are going to get dressed. Hopefully you did that already this morning, but if you're joining us online, that kind of is optional. That's the great thing about watching church at home. You don't really have to get dressed. So here we go. First up, the promise. And speaking for myself only, this promise should hit us way harder than it actually does. When we go through the promises of Scripture and all of that stuff, guys, this should be promise number one. I mean, it should be up there with some of the greatest promises that we name and claim. But we struggle to. And even more importantly than just naming the promise, we really struggle to live and to walk out the implications of this promise. Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chew on that. Y'all, there is no condemnation at all. None. It's all gone. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took all of it. Every last drop of it. I really love this, this illustration that Pastor Tim Keller gives, but he talks about when Christians are going through hard things. He says, when Christians go through hard times, there can be a multitude of reasons for God putting you through hard, hard things, for you going through suffering, for you going through trials and loss and all of those things. But there is one thing that we as Christians know God is not doing. And that is he is not punishing us. He is not doing it because he doesn't care. He is not doing it because he's punishing us. Do you know why? Because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Y'all, if you have a Christian friend, and y'all, there, <laughs> I've, I've had talks with people about this theology that exists out there. Well, you know, he did this, and you know, he did this, and so that's why this happened to his kids. And, oh, well, you know, this happened over here, and, and you know, he did this, so that's why this is happening. Y'all, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus to look at something and say, look, there are consequences to sin, right? There are consequences to sin. But to say that God is punishing someone because of sin in their life or because of past sin or whatever it is, then what Jesus did didn't cover it all. Do you see that? Because if there is still punishment left, and look, I'll be honest with you all, sometimes when I screw up, I want there to be a punishment, right? Because it would make me feel better if I didn't have to receive a handout from Jesus. It would make me feel better if I could say, all right, Jesus, punish me just a little bit so that I can pay for these sins. I can't do that. That is not the gospel. And Jesus says, I have paid 
for all of your sins. Past, present, and future, it is all covered. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now there's two sides to this coin. And depending, it's probably split pretty evenly what side of this you struggle with. There are Christians who really struggle with the side. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But they are so racked with shame and guilt that they refuse to acknowledge this promise. Your sins, past sins, weigh so heavily on you that you can't get over it. But look at the promise. Jesus has forgiven your sins. Why haven't you? But then there's the other side of the coin, where Jesus, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? My past sins are forgiven. So if I stumble into a few more along the way, it's not that big a deal. That's called cheap grace. And it's just as deadly. Both sides of that are deadly. And you can tell which side you're on because you look at the other one and say, oh, that one's way worse. <laughs> that's how it usually works, right? We look at the other side and say, oh, that's, that one's the bad one. But both are deadly. And both are not the gospel. For those of us who struggle to forgive ourselves, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Leave your sin in the past. For those of us who struggle to walk away with sin, from sin, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Walk away. You see, you both converge the same path. Walk away from the sin in your life. Leave it in the past. Don't pick it back up. The funny thing is, we try to sneak in this lie from the enemy here, don't we? Surely this isn't what God meant. Surely God didn't mean no condemnation. And I have to be honest with you guys, like sometimes Paul kind of hits the same thing, right? Because he hits these people, and he's, what's he say in Romans 7? Well, so some will say the law is sin. Surely not so, right? He goes through that whole thing. So some people look at this and they say, well, pastor, we can't teach it like this because people are going to abuse this. If you tell people there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, they're just going to do whatever they want and expect to be forgiven. But we can't teach the gospel based on what people are going to do incorrectly, right? We've got to teach the gospel based on the truth. And the reality is this isn't a new phenomena. It's not like God woke up during Romans, while Paul was writing Romans 8 and God was like, oh, hey, you know what? Let's add this in there, Paul. Let's add this new little thing that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's just put it in there, right? It sounds like a good thing. We'll start it today. That's not how God works, right? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, correct? This is how God has been from the very beginning. Look at this. This is from Psalm 103. King David writes, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always contend with us, nor will he keep 
his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our guilty deeds. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our wrongdoings from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. There is this marvelous thing that we see here. And if we really cling to it, if we chase the implications of this, we see David saying the same thing as Paul, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, David's saying it prophetically, right? Jesus hadn't paid for the sins yet, but David knew Jesus was coming. And so he could say this, but look at what David is saying. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great God's mercy is for us, for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our sins from us. This means you are not going to understand grace, right? As high as the heavens are above, anybody in here, do do any of you know how high the heavens are above the earth, right? Does anybody, can you pull out your measuring tape? I feel like God in the book of Job right now, but can you pull out your measuring tape and measure how far east is from west? You can't, right? David, through the Holy Spirit, is saying, guys, you're never going to get it, but that doesn't make it any less true. Stop trying to wrap your mind around the grace of God. Stop trying to understand it with your tiny mind. I'm not calling you stupid. God is. Stop trying to understand it and accept it. God has offered us a love that we will never be able to comprehend. God has offered us a depth of forgiveness that we will never be able to understand. The trouble we get in is when we try to understand it, isn't it? Because we assume, well, God's going to judge that sin more than this sin. And we make these jumps that Christians should not make. Because as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great God's mercy is towards us. Sinners saved by grace. But David is not the only one. I could go through a bunch of these, y'all, but I'm trying to keep my time down. So Jeremiah 31, very, very important passage of scripture for Christians. We don't turn to it nearly enough. In Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, the prophet Jeremiah lays out the new covenant. You know, we talk about the new covenant a lot as Christians. You know, Jesus came to establish this new covenant. Every time we do communion, we talk about Jesus when he, when he you know, drank the cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood, right? But so many Christians don't follow that and figure out, well, what is the new covenant? What's he talking about? Jesus is referencing Jeremiah 31, which says this, starting in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each one to his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wrongdoing, and their sin I will remember no more. Now we're going to go a little deeper into this at the end of the sermon today, so I'm not going to go into too much right now. So if you're thoroughly confused, take hope. But again, we see this theme. I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will remember their sins no more. I have a friend, him and I have had roaring conversations about this, and I vehemently disagree with his stance that he takes. He's got an end-time stance. Anytime you get into end-times theology, it always gets so wonky and goofy. My end-times theology is, I have no idea what's going to go on, y'all. I read the book of Revelation, I'm just as confused as all of you. So I'm going to live my life for Jesus, and I'm going to obey the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to trust that he's going to put me where I need to be on the day that the great tribulation comes. If I stay here, I stay here. If I don't, I don't, whatever. But I'm going to be where he wants me to be, right? That's my philosophy. But he's got this philosophy that at the end, there's that passage uh, from Revelation 21.4. That says that God will come and he will wipe every tear away from our eye, right? So he uses that to to base this idea that at that moment, God is going to show all of us all of the sins that we have ever committed. And we're going to see this laundry list of sins and we're just going to weep because of the ways that we've sinned against our God. And he's going to come and show us the depths of his forgiveness and wipe every tear from our, from our eye. No. See, I, and I, I called him my friend, right? We're, we're friends. You can be friends and strongly disagree with people on things. But y'all, look at this passage and tell me that that's true. Because in the new covenant that God gives us, that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, God says, I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will remember their sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our sins from us. Right? Does that sound like a God who is going to come up on the last days and say, hey, Jeremy, sit down in my theater room here. Remember when you were four years old and the Buffalo Bills didn't win the Super Bowl? Remember when you were 41 years old and the Cleveland Browns didn't win the Super Bowl? I got a little video to show you. And the reels, right? That doesn't sound anything like a God who has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. From a God who promises us in this new covenant, bound in the blood of the Son of God, a covenant that can never be broken, y'all. Here's the thing. The old covenant was broken. We broke it, right? That was the law. It was broken. This new covenant in Jesus' blood cannot be broken, Because Jesus Christ himself sealed it. You don't seal the new covenant. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But this new covenant can't be broken. And God says in the new covenant, I will remember their sins no more. 
Do you see the theme going on here? This theme of how thoroughly we are forgiven. Now the question is, do you live like it, Christian? If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, do you live like this is how you've been forgiven? Because on the one side, there can be no more shame when you walk with a God who says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at this. God has forgotten your sin. You need to too. In the great famous words of Queen Elsa of Arendelle, let it go. Right? Let it go. But on the other side of this, God has forgiven you so thoroughly and promises that he does not remember any of your past. How in the world the Son of God shed his blood for you to forgive you of this debt. How in the world can you keep running back to those old sins? How in the world can you keep trampling the Son of God underfoot by making the same mistakes again and again and again. I I understand addiction, and I understand all of these things, but y'all, we have got to give it to Jesus. We have got to hand these things over, and I'm putting myself in that category, y'all. Addictions and, and, and the sins that I run back to, I've got to give it to Jesus, and I have to trust that he will break those chains. That if it's an addiction, if it's a mental thing, if it's whatever, that he will break it because he's called me out of that grave to live with him. But I've got to take those thoughts captive. I've got to take those addictions captive and make them obedient to Christ. There's another theme that's going on here, though when we look through all of these. When we look through this promise, when we look through from David, Jeremiah, there's a theme that we don't like to talk about in our culture today. Because we get preached at a lot that God loves us with an unconditional love. Right? There are no strings attached to God's love for us. Is that what the Bible says? Because it makes us uncomfortable, especially in our culture today. But Christianity, within Christianity, there is this exclusive inclusion that happens. Now, inclusion is all the rage today, right? You gotta include everybody. Everybody gets to play, right? Even if little Johnny is terrible at the sport, you still got to pick him, right? Everybody gets to play, and everybody gets to play by whatever rules they want. That's inclusion. But guys, that's not what Christianity is. And the longer we keep giving in to this idea that you can come to Jesus on your terms, the further people are going to drift from the true Jesus, It's not a wonder our world doesn't know who God is right now, y'all. Because the image that the church has put forward of who God is, it doesn't look anything like him. 
because there's this really unpopular part of Christianity that is very exclusive. Look at the promise. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for every human that walks the earth. Not what it says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love you all, but I love you too much to let you believe a lie. Some of us have to be the same way with some of our loved ones. We've got to love them enough that it's unacceptable to us that they believe a lie. And the reality of Christianity is it is an extremely exclusive club, if you will. But here's the crazy thing about it. It is the most inclusive, exclusive club that there is, right? Everybody is invited, but you have to come. This has always irked me with this argument of exclusivity with Christianity because people will get upset about it, right? Well, Christians are so exclusive. And, and look, th- you got to be careful. Christians are exclusive <laughs> and not a good way, right? I'm sure some of you have gone into churches where it feels like a country club. And if you don't have the right credentials, if you don't flash your Christian badge, if you don't say the right theological words and all the things, you don't get in. Uh, you actually meant to go to the country club down the street. Our church isn't for you. Right? Not Jesus' exclusive. That's not his. But Jesus' exclusive is y'all are invited. Everybody is invited but you got to come. Have you ever had anyone get upset with you that they were invited to your birthday party and chose not to come? Has anybody ever gotten upset with you about that? Because it's not exclusive, right? You were included. You got an invitation. What are you upset about? You're upset when you don't get an invitation, right? Most of the time, Jan and I, we get upset that we didn't get an invitation when we weren't going to go anyway right? Well, it just would have been nice if we would have been invited. We weren't going to go anyway. But it's not exclusive if you're invited and choose not to come. We've got a world that is screaming that Christianity is exclusive. Y'all, it's not exclusive. It is the most inclusive, exclusive religion that there is. Everybody is invited, but you have got to come. Everybody is invited to claim these promises. But you've got to come to the right person. Look at this. This is another name it and claim it scripture passage that Christians love to name and claim. 2 Corinthians 1, 19-22, it says, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but has been yes in him. For as many as the promises of God are, In him they are yes. Therefore, through him also is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts 
as a pledge. Now, you get a lot of Christians who love all the promises of God are yes and amen. And so we're going to claim those promises and we're going to live however we want. That's not the promise, y'all. Is it? In Him, all of God's promises are yes. But if you are standing outside of Him, do you get to reach inside of Him and grab your promises and pull them on out to you? You don't. That's not how Christianity works. In Him, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Him. Y'all, every promise, not, not even that, every jot and tittle, that's what Jesus says, right? That's the King James Version. Every jot and tittle in this book is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In him. I got this really embarrassing story. I've told some of you this before, but there are these psalms. In the psalms, they're called the imprecatory psalms. Doesn't that just sound impressive? Sounds so impressive. The imprecatory psalms are the psalms that you love to pray when somebody makes you angry, right? You go through the psalms and David's like, God, smite my enemies. So-and-so did me wrong. I want you to expose him as the liar he is, right? So there's this Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. I went through a season of my life where I was going through it and I was really mad at some people. And I prayed that prayer every morning. That's why I have it memorized. Isn't that interesting? But I prayed that. And I said, God, vindicate me. Right? There were people talking all sorts of stuff behind my back, saying all sorts of nasty lies about me. God, vindicate me. For I have walked in my integrity. Right? You can hear the pastor coming out, right? I have walked in my integrity. And I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Right? That's how I prayed. Doesn't get much more self-righteous than that, does it? And thank God, one morning I prayed that prayer and the Holy Spirit punched me in the face like you wouldn't believe. He said, Jeremy, do you hear what you're praying? You have trusted in the Lord without wavering. And then I felt about this big. Well, most days. (laughs) No, some days. Once I did. And then he got me. Jeremy, you are praying so hard for this person's sins to be exposed. But do you really want me to drag you in front of that court? Do you want me to open up your closets like you're asking me to open up his? Right? And I thought, oh, man. I can't pray this anymore. Then thank the Lord I read this book by this brilliant pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together. And in it, he talks about how this entire book is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So when we pray prayers, when I stand before the Lord and I say, God, vindicate me, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering, I am not praying that based on Jeremy Metzger's standing. I'm praying it based on Jesus's. I am saying Jesus. Now look, look. Now when the Holy Spirit exposes you like that, 
all of a sudden I'm not so interested in God exposing the people who are against me, right? I'm not so interested in him exposing all my enemies, but do I still want to be vindicated? Absolutely. God, vindicate me. And even if I'm not vindicated in front of the world, even if I'm not vindicated in front of my friend group or or whatever it is, vindicate me for you, Lord God. Let me know that you see me and that you know I am doing everything I can to walk in your righteousness. But guys, it's fulfilled in Christ. Every promise, every scripture verse, every prayer that we prayed, if you are praying it in your strength and in your standing, you are not walking in the gospel. Everything you pray, every scripture verse you read, everything you do as a Christian is on his merit, not ours. Do you see why we can't walk in our own strength? Do you see why none of this is possible if we are trying to do it on our own? But do you see why these promises must be claimed in Christ? Jesus gives this very interesting parable. And it's not popular, but it sums this up well. He says this in Matthew 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who held a wedding feast for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened cattle are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their separate ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And they, the rest seized the slaves and treated them abusively and then killed them. Now the king was angry, and he sent his armies to destroy those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. So go to the main roads and invite whomever you find there to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king said to his servants, Tie his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place. For many are called, but few are chosen. Inclusion is all the rage today, y'all. And this is as inclusive as it gets, right? Everyone is invited. In the kingdom of heaven, everyone has been invited. Now you have some people who just flat out ignore the invitation. Okay, but don't get angry. Don't get angry when you see the king of glory coming when you see what this king truly looks like, what love personified looks like, and you didn't choose him. But then you also have those who try to come to Jesus on their own terms, right? Dressed in their clothes. How many of us try to come to Jesus dressed in my robes of righteousness, right? Come to Jesus and say, well, if God, I mean, 
I, I just can't believe that there's a God who would say that I can't do this or that. I can't believe that there's a God who would tell me that I have to get rid of this. That's coming in my wedding clothes, right? If we come to Jesus, first we have to come, right? Jesus extends the invitation to us all, and I, I hope everyone here, you've accepted that invitation, right? You're here, you're sitting in a church, so, <laughs> you know, it doesn't make you a Christian. Because there's one more step, right? You've got to put on the right clothes, What's the theme we see all throughout the Bible? Clothe yourselves in Christ. Right? Clothe yourselves in Christ. So we've got to get dressed. We cannot claim the promises of Christ unless we are in Christ. And so we have got to figure out how to get in Christ. And it's what we talked about last week, right? How many of you memorized that scripture, Galatians 2.20? Did you at least write it down? Right? It's no longer I who lives, who live, but Christ who lives in me. How do we clothe ourselves in Christ? How do we claim the promises in Christ? That's a great prayer to get you started. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now we talked about that new covenant from Jeremiah 31. And when we go through this, you can see the marriage of what Paul's talking about in Romans 7 and how it connects to what we're talking about now in Romans 8. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband. Stop here. Look at what we're talking about. The old covenant, which was the law, right? That's exactly what Paul was talking about in Romans 7. But what do you have to do? And this is why we get into, I know it gets confusing. Struggle through the confusion, y'all. Read it. Dive into it. Dig in. Paul talks in Romans 7 about a marriage, right? While you're still married, while you're married, there's a covenant that exists. I am married to Jana. There is a covenant that exists, that covenant ends when what? One of us dies, right? Me, because I'm going to die first. We've already made that agreement. I can't live without her, so I'm going to go first. That's how it works. Jesus. So, one of us has to die, right? Before you can enter a new covenant. Right? Do you see it? This is why Paul says we must die to the old covenant. You must die to the law. Paul didn't make this up out of thin air, right? This is the new covenant. You broke it. I broke it. And so the only way out of it now is for a death to occur. And that death occurred. Who died? I did. 
false. Jesus did. Do you see it? Jesus died to fulfill this new covenant, y'all. But now I can't sit here and hold on to it. I can't sit here and keep clinging to the law because I get a stay in my flesh. I've got to walk with him into this new covenant, which isn't fulfilled in the flesh anymore, but by the Spirit. Do you see it? Guys, this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 7. It's what he's talking about in Romans 8. He's saying, even though there's a struggle, die to it so that you can walk into this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. You do not have to have the law memorized. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. I told you my gaffe as a youth pastor when I made the mistake of telling everyone, you don't need to know the Ten Commandments. And I got blasted by youth parents for telling their kids that they didn't need the Ten Commandments. I, I stand on it. You don't. Why don't you need to have the Ten Commandments memorized? Because if you're walking in the Spirit, He will walk the law for you. Is it good to have the Ten Commandments memorized? Absolutely. It is good to hide God's Word in our heart. But do you need it to walk out the commandments? You do not any longer. Because through Jesus Christ, He has put His law in our hearts. He will be our God. We will be His people. I love this passage. I don't think the American church as a business likes this passage. I love it. They will not teach again, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. There was this myth that happened in Christianity, right? Where, where priests were the only ones, the Bible was only written in Latin, so that the lay people couldn't read the Bible because they wouldn't know how to handle it. Show me that here. This predates all of that stuff, all of that nonsense and garbage. What does God say? You don't need a pastor, y'all. I love being your pastor. You don't need me. And can I tell you something? If you are depending on me to hear from God every Sunday, if you come in here like, oh, I need to hear from God this week, you've got to hear Pastor Jeremy, you're missing it. I love to give you God's word, and I love to tell you what God's telling me, but if you're not getting it on your own, you are missing the new covenant. Because God promised, because of what Jesus did, that you can know God. Now, there are all sorts of other passages that tell us that we need to walk in community together, right? We would be ignoring those things. There are people who do that. I don't need a pastor. I can do this by myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over here and I'm going to learn from God all by myself and I'm not going to trust in anyone else. That's not what the Bible says either, right? Satan doesn't care what side of the horse you fall off on just as long as you don't stay in the saddle, right? So we got to stay in the middle on that. But, guys, you should be hearing from God on your own. And if you aren't, start Spend that time with God and ask Him to speak to you and to teach you. And then bring somebody along with you. That's what discipling is, right? 
The Holy Spirit disciples us, and then we walk with others. And then I will forgive their wrongdoing, and their sin I will no longer remember. I love that God forgives our sins. I love that he doesn't remember my past, y'all. But that's a small part of the promise. Do you see how big this promise is? But then look, look at what Paul does here at the end of Romans 8. Just, just not the end of Romans 8, it's just the passage that we looked at today. We'll focus on the rest of it throughout this month. But look at where Paul goes after Romans 8.1. And here, I'm, I'm guilty of this. I couldn't tell you what Paul says after Romans 8.1, right? Sometimes we get so focused on the promise that we forget what comes after the promise. Don't forget what comes after the promise. Because while Paul does give us this promise and says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, look what he says. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You want to talk about a promise, y'all. Look at that promise. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are in accord with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Here it is, y'all. I would love, that's a lie, I wouldn't love that. A lot of people would love to stand up here and tell you, these are the three steps that you have to take to make sure that you are in Christ. And, you know, we'd, we'd make it alliterative and it'd, it'd like spell a word out. What's that, an acronym? Is that, what's that called? Is that an acronym? When you have, you know, like DARE and everything's got it. And so we'd make it that and it'd be like frog and like fully rely on God. And then everybody would be able to remember it. It's easier than that. What's Paul say? How can you make sure you're in Christ? Do you have the Spirit of God in you? Am I missing it? Is there more to that equation? Right? We love to make Christianity this Y equals MC squared, this huge algebraic equation that's impossible because it makes us look smart, and then we can publish more books that way. But God, Paul says this, if you have the Spirit of God, you can know without question that you are in Christ. If you don't, you're not. So can I ask you, a question, black and white. Do you have the Spirit of God? 
The Bible says anybody who comes to faith in Jesus has the Spirit of God working in them. You can't call Jesus Christ the Son of God without the Spirit revealing that to you. So let me ask you again. Do you have the Spirit of God? Now let me follow that up. Why aren't you listening to him? Right? That's the heavy hitter. I promise you, if God's condemning you, he condemned me first. <laughs> right? If we have the Spirit of God living in us, why in the world am I trusting in Jeremy's intellect? Why in the world am I trusting in man's ways if he has offered to direct my path? You have the Spirit of God. You are in Christ. Walk in it. Live that life. Stop following the flesh and live in the Spirit. That's how we do it, y'all. And when we do, we have this promise that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ? You have the Spirit, right? Then you're in Christ. So, is there any condemnation left for you? Live like it. When you walk out these doors, even before you get there, when you talk to one another here, when you stay for food, when, when you fellowship together, guys, let's live like we believe this promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit of God lives inside of you, which means that there is no more sin. This doesn't mean there's not temptation, right? Temptation will always come around, but what's the Bible promise? Temptation will come around, but God will always show you the way out. Our problem is that we usually don't want to follow him, right? Because the temptation looks fun. But God will always show us a way out if we're listening to the Spirit. Can I tell you all brutal honesty? Every time I've screwed up, every time I screw up, I know the way out. The Holy Spirit shows me the way out. I just don't want to do it. It's embarrassing to me. A lot of times, you know what, what it is? He tells me, you need to call so-and-so, like my, my friends that keep me accountable on stuff, and I don't want to do it because it's embarrassing, right? I'm, I'm one of those people, you guys who didn't know me in high school, I used to be a cowboy. I did, I had a cowboy hat, the whole thing, wore the Wranglers, yeah. But here's the problem with cowboys. They're stubborn, and you can ask my wife, there's some of that cowboy that's still in there because I don't like asking for help. That goes with people and that goes with God. I'm a self-made man, doggone it, right? And in America, that's a good thing. Not with God, though, is it? Because God says, Jeremy, you need people. And when I'm ready, when there's sin in front of me, when there's temptation in front of me, and he says, you need to reach out to your friend, God, that would be admitting to him that I got weakness. Now, it's okay if he admits to me he has weakness, right? I've got to swallow that pride. Now, maybe you're not like that at all. But whatever sin you're struggling with, look at it. Look at it, y'all. God's shown you the way out of it, hasn't he? If he hasn't, keep looking. And I, I, 
I know human nature enough. I know it in me enough to know. We know how to get out. We see it. We just got to take it. We've got to die to the flesh. And we've got to follow him. Because what is it? Oh, it's too strong, pastor. You don't understand. Stronger than your God? Come on now. We know better than that. The enemy will always ask, did God really say no condemnation? Did he really say that you were forgiven everything? Did he really say he would completely? He'll always bring it up, y'all. But those excuses, they don't exist in the Spirit. They don't exist in God's kingdom. So we have got to leave sin behind. Whether that's the shame and the guilt that sin still carries in your life, leave it behind. God has forgotten. Or whether that's the sin that you just refuse to stop going back to, leave it behind. God has given us the Spirit so that we can live in Christ. But we've got to live in Him. We've got to follow Him. We've got to die to the flesh and come alive in this new covenant that He's given us. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like Him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the Gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you. And remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.